Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation with Sharon Salzberg on October 22nd, 2020. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Deshidele, and uh, welcome to another episode of Tibet Talks. Uh, today, our guest is a New York Times bestselling author and teacher of Tibetan meditation. Many of you know her. A first encounter with Buddhism as a college student in 1969 sparked an interest that took her on a journey to India to study meditation. Returning to the United States five years later, she began to teach. In 1976, she co-founded the Insight Meditation Society in Barr, Massachusetts, and 13 years later, she co-founded the Barr Center for Buddhist Studies. Today, she offers a variety of teachings around the globe and is the author of 11 books, including Loving Kindness and her latest book, Real Change, on how to embody fundamental principles of mindfulness practice towards creating social change and a better world for all. So please join me to welcome our guest of the hour, Sharon Salzberg. Um, Sharon is a long supporter of ICT and a dear friend. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sharon. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Sharon. And then as always, I want to invite ICT President Matteo, Matteo to join as moderator today. Hi, Matteo. Hello, Tenjo. Hello, Sharon. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you both. And uh, for our online viewers, uh, we will be taking questions at the end of the conversation. So if you have questions, please post them on the live stream below the Facebook live stream. Or if you're watching on our website, you can email it to us at uh, comments at safetibet.org. Thank you. And I'll hand over to Matteo. Thank you, Tencho. And thank you, Sharon, again for joining us today. Uh, so we are very happy to have you with us. Uh, you know, you're a well-known and accomplished, you know, meditation teacher and, uh, you know, one of the pioneers of Buddhist meditation in the U.S. And you have been teaching for many years, as Tencho has mentioned in the introduction, and actually for for a period of time also in our ICT office in yeah. Washington, D.C. So it's good to be to be back with you and to have you with our community. Uh, so as we begin this conversation, I think it could be helpful, uh, you know, despite your, you know, curriculum and books, but maybe if you can share a little bit more, you know, from your personal point of view, what led you to choose this path in your life and to become a Buddhist meditation teacher? Uh, yes, thank you. So wonderful to be together again, actually. Well, the, that's a question in two parts. I went to India in 1970, I was a university student, and uh, the year before I had taken an Asian philosophy course, which honestly, as I look back, was kind of happenstance. It fit nicely into the schedule that I was devising, so I thought, oh, I'll do that one. Um, and it completely changed my life. It was in the context of that course that I really first learned about Buddhism and I first learned about meditation. And what I heard uh, from the point of view of the teachings was the Buddha saying, suffering is a part of life. And I had had a very kind of traumatic, difficult childhood. And like for many people, um, this was never really spoken about in my family. And, 
And I always felt somewhat isolated and different from other people. And here was the Buddha saying right out loud, this is a part of life, which was another way of saying you belong. And I found that breathtaking that everybody, not that we all suffer to the same degree because we don't, but we're also vulnerable in that there's a possibility of finding one another in that vulnerability, really caring for one another. So that was actually a big upheaval in my life. And then I heard that there was a thing called meditation. There were actually methods that you could use that if you use them, you could be a whole lot happier. So I was going to college in Buffalo, New York. I looked around Buffalo. I didn't see it anywhere. And I devised this independent study project and presented it to the university. I said, I want to go to India and learn how to meditate. So education, I guess, was kind of wilder and freer then. They said, sure. So I went with my student loans and my scholarships off to find a teacher. And I ended up, I did find a teacher. I found several teachers. I began practicing meditation. In all honesty, I stayed longer than my year. Uh, and then I went back to Buffalo, finished school. Uh, I ended up getting two years of independent study credit, went back to India to continue practice. And I finally came back in 1974 as a teacher. So that's kind of the second part of your question. I thought I was coming back to the States for a very short trip, like to renew my visa and do things like that. And then I was going to go back to India for the rest of my life. And I went to see one of my teachers, this woman named Deepa Ma, who, uh, which is of course a nickname, like meaning Deepa's mother, but she lived in Calcutta. And she had been a very important teacher for me. So I went to say goodbye and basically just get her blessing for my short trip home. And she told me, when you go home, when you go back to the States, you'll be teaching. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. She said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. So that was the, I don't know if it's inauspicious, but that was the beginning of my teaching career because I came back not thinking that at all. But it turned out, of course, she was correct. People started inviting us to lead retreats. And I thought, well, I'll just do this retreat, and then I'll go back, and then I'll do this other retreat, and then I'll go back. And then one day I woke up and I thought, oh, she was right. So here I am. So you were one of the first, I guess, mm -hmm. Buddhist meditation teacher. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the environment, you know, those years? You know, who were the people interested? Who were the other, you know, pioneers, let's put it this way? Yeah, well, there was, there was the wave of people, you know, uh, like me who had gone to Asia, Joseph Goldstein, for example, and I in India, Jack Cornfield in Thailand, having a parallel life, people um, going to Nepal, certainly, uh, finding teachers. And something that intrigues me a lot is that the accessibility was so rare that you had to be highly, highly motivated in order to try to find these tools. And so uh, I was 18 years old. I went to India before I'd ever been to California. I was not unusual in, in the sense that you had to do that. You had to do something very intense in order to actually have access to teachings and to methods. And so um, it's not, of course, that way anymore. But coming back was really interesting because meditation uh, was often considered exotic or removed from day-to-day -day life and kind of woo-woo, you know, and so I'd be at a party or some social situation and introduced as a meditation teacher and 
people would often kind of sidle away a little bit, you know, it's like, oh, that's weird. Or occasionally somebody would ask me, well, did you meet the Beatles when you were over there? I'd say, no, sadly, they went when I was in high school. And besides, it's a different tradition altogether. But these days, the most common response, I mean, we don't have parties right now, but the most common response I would hear recently would be, oh, I'm so stressed out, I could use some of that. So I think there's been a very different growing understanding. In the beginning, the people who came to retreats were basically uh, either people who'd been in India with us or people who had long wanted to learn some methodologies and some techniques. And, and then we watched the waves happen. You know, older people started coming once they'd retired who were looking for a new lease on life. And then younger people started coming. And then artists and scientists and it's been very interesting so definitely there has been a you know probably a tectonic shift in you know perception you know of what it is meditation what it can do to people but i think that there are still a lot of people who you know would like to learn more and so i think you are a teacher but naturally you're a practitioner first so if you could you know simply share what are the benefits that you personally have you know, taken out of this practice and maybe, you know, people if are interested, they could, you know, look into that. Uh, yes, certainly. And I, I, I'm relying on my practice quite a lot these days myself, personally. So I feel very close to that question. And some of it um, is like foundational exercises, being able to center, not be so incredibly caught up in thoughts and feelings and all the many things that come and go not dismissing them or trying to get rid of them, but just getting a little bit of space. You know, so being able to center, being able to be with some very difficult feelings of, say, grief and anger and fear and so on, without adding to it the things we normally add to them. This is only me, that sense of isolation, rather than a sense of community, judgment rather than compassion for oneself kind of seemingly unchanging future, like I'm only gonna feel this forever. This is really me, like an identification with those feelings. So it's a very different way of, of being with painful experience and a very different way of being with joyous, wonderful experiences because it's hard to remember that it's okay, you know, to, to look at the joy that life is also delivering to us. And more than anything, I think, the practice and the teachings give us a sense, a profound sense of connection to others. And I always thought that was kind of weird, actually, because if, if you're meditating, you might be all alone. That might be your habit. Maybe your eyes are closed. But somehow this very genuine recognition of how interconnected our lives are arises. And, and that changes everything because... Here we are, a lot of people are in physical isolation, though not everybody. And even before the pandemic, I kept reading how there was like an epidemic of loneliness happening mm -hmm. in many places. And people um, are, you know, have been studying for some time the value of social connection, the role of social connection in healing modalities. And I kept thinking that can't just be a question of numbers. like you have only two friends, you need eight, you know? It's some inner sense of knowing our lives are all interdependent. And I believe that's true, that that's what actually 
is is the factor that helps toward healing and and ending this this sense of loneliness and so that has probably been the most important benefit that I've gotten yeah and actually it brings us to to your latest book that you know Tencho has mentioned it's available on Amazon and everywhere you want you know you can buy a book real change mindfulness to heal ourselves and the world so clearly in the book you make a strong case uh, on how you know mindfulness loving kindness can help each of us individually to deal with anxieties the fears and i think in this moment everybody you know probably understand this much better because we are all going through you know this pandemic and the upfields you know uh, that has produced in our lives but what i found very interesting is that you also make a strong case that this practice needs to translate into action and without action i don't know i don't want to put my words in your mouth but you know there are some limits to the impact of this practice that you can have so mm -hmm. can you explain you know our audience is an audience that are very much engaged in social action to help the tibetan people preserve their identity and culture. So can you explain to our audience that, you know, probably they are engaged at that level, you know, what are the benefits of also the, the individual practice and also how the two connect with each other? How are both important? Well, I think my road to really um, speaking more directly to activism actually came uh, because in the beginning of, of our teaching or presentations, just like when I was teaching at ICT, Everything was just open, you know, whoever showed up, showed up. And and um, I also got to learn a lot about lots of different kinds of people that way. But more uh, as time went on, I would begin teaching uh, more specifically for groups that we call caregivers. I actually think there needs to be a better word, but I'm not sure what it is. Either people who in their personal lives were caring, say, for a family member, but mostly people who in their professional lives uh, were caring for others, people who I would consider really being on the front lines of suffering. Um, it started with domestic violence shelter workers through this program through the Garrison Institute, mm -hmm. and then international humanitarian aid workers, people say working in the refugee camps um, in Syria and other places, um, and these days back domestically uh, frontline medical personnel, not only doctors and nurses, but like ambulance drivers and, and uh, EMTs and people like that. And these are people who have enormous empathy for others and sense of caring and are taking action and often are burning out for other reasons. And so as much as I appreciate kind of a cultural message these days of the need for empathy training, and which is true, it's a very cold and cruel world without any empathy for one another, these people have plenty of empathy, you know, but they're burning out. And so uh, all the programs I was involved in were kind of resiliency programs, helping to just offer tools, which are like an experiment. You know, are these tools actually helping you sustain your work? And then I thought, these are really like activists. This, it's the greatest similarity. You know, people on the front lines of suffering, dealing with what might seem an intractable problem, day by day needing to find inspiration and balance, you know, some balance between caring for themselves and caring for others, or some balance between 
being wholehearted in one's effort and not getting an immediate result always, you know, and needing to not just fall into discouragement. And so that became a, a really big interest of mine in trying to help. Yes, certainly. And I think, you know, some of our audience and, you know, some of our members probably can relate to that because if you think also about the Tibet freedom movement, which is now more than 30 years old in the West. I mean, ICT was founded, you know, over 30 years ago. And there have been people and, you know, many of our members also have been with us for a long time, you know, 25 years, 30 years, 20 years. So there is an element of resilience there, which I think it's very important. And in my view, it needs to be connected also with your inner world. Uh, because unless you have that, you know, there's a really a risk of burning out because if you put a lot of energy into something that does not produce results and there's a lot of frustration, then, you know, you become, you know, sometimes you blame your neighbor, sometimes you blame yourself and then it, it's over. So I think those are, those are important conversation. I think, um, during this time for those who are involved in social activism and social change. And so. You know, one of the quotes that we use in our, you know, communication with our members from His Holiness the Dalai Lama is that it's not enough to be compassionate. We must act. So on the other hand, you have, let's put it this way, the meditation crowd, the meditation, the Dharma community. Uh, do you see there a need to have more, you know, action-oriented practice that you just don't, you know, take care of yourself. You certainly have to take care of yourself, but how do you translate this into something more meaningful? Yeah, I definitely see that. And in some ways I wrote the book with a bi-directional flow, you know, uh, because clearly I know a lot of meditators. I've been teaching since 1974. And um, I see uh, what I believe is a genuine transformation for many, many people uh, from just having a life to becoming more compassionate because we pay more attention. We do have a deeper sense of interconnection. Uh, we find we care. We, we really do care more about others, but that doesn't always translate into action. And some of that lack, I think, is people feel I could never do enough. You know, anything I do would be so small, so insignificant. So I won't do anything, you know, uh, and we actually don't have that sense of agency. Um, you know, of going forward and taking just one step, doing the good that's in front of you. I learned that in many ways from His Holiness, you know, that you can't disregard or discount some action because it seems too small. Uh, you have to do it. And the doing of it is transformational itself, you know, and that's that's what's onward leading. Um, but I see that many, many times. And, and also, I think that uh, something that's very pertinent to the Mahayana teachings and, and Tibetan teachings in particular is, is looking more deeply at causes and conditions. And so um, the example I've used forever is I know countless people who said to me, you know, I began meditating and I was taking a walk and somebody on the street asked me for a dollar and I gave them a dollar because that's my practice. But this is the first time I ever looked that person in the eye and realized that was a human being. But what that person talking to me may not go on to investigate is, 
What's the housing policy in this city that there's so many people living on the street? You know, and that's an important ingredient, that kind of analysis, to realize that there are systems of oppression, for example, that are in place that uh, we need to use our, our intellect to really evaluate so that when we take that one small step, um, it's in the context of a big view. You know, we, we have to hold both kind of a, a larger view and the efficacy of one small step. It's not nothing. Yes. What I've heard sometimes, and I don't know if it's, you know, it cannot be applied to everybody, but I think one of the obstacles people are facing is that they see politics as something contentious, something controversial, where there, there is conflict. And I think, you know, the, the practice of meditation now is try to stay calm, you know, to, you know, to deal with your feelings, not to, you know, be dominated by your feelings. Um, my background is from activism, from politics, you know, since I was a teenager. So I always felt that I needed to put that energy to, you know, to, you know, to find inner peace, to have, you know, to achieve justice, etc. Uh, but I understand, you know, people come from different, you know, backgrounds and, uh, you know, personal histories. So what do you say, you know, to your, you know, students who say, you know, but I don't want to get involved in politics. You see, you know, all the, you know, rage, the conflict there. How, how do you advise them? take meaningful action without getting, you know, absorbed yeah. by that negative emotions. Well, I and mean, I think that's the whole point, right? You know, so maybe that person needs to reform politics mm -hmm. so that it's not, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to disparage emotion, but sometimes our view is distorted because we're too lost in the emotion. Um, and that if we could only have a little bit more space, we might see options that are not available or we can, we all know that someone can walk into a meeting with a strong fixation on one resolution and then maybe 50 resolutions are, are presented, but they, they're not even heard, you know, because someone is so attached or fixated to that one idea that they had and we might all benefit from a little bit more space and spaciousness and an ability to kind of look uh, without so much attachment and, and anger and so on. And, uh, and take stronger action and actually more effective action because of that. So I don't think that they're, they're dissimilar. I think the strengths actually lend themselves to one another, but you're totally right. I mean, I, I'm a big advocate of voting and here we are in the United States, you know, just before a presidential election. And I've talked to many people who say, well, you know, and, but here I think our, our genuine sense of interconnection is what carries the day because you may not feel that impassioned about a candidate, for example, but small policy difference might make a huge difference in someone else's life. And if we weren't so insulated from one another, we, we might recognize that, well, you know, that, that makes a difference and I need to participate, I need to engage. Do we need to get like divisive and horrible? Well, no, hopefully not. You know, and and that world could probably use a little cooling out as yeah. well. But I, I see the benefit or the main uh, design of meditation is more toward insight or wisdom rather than only calm. You know, we use that calm or we establish the calm so that we can see more clearly. 
Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I think, you know, probably we need more meditation teachers like you who, you know, <laughs> challenge people to try, you know, to find that inner mm -hmm. and looking for common ground with others. Also with people who may have different opinions, you know, completely different opinions on many things, but there may be something on which you can agree. So don't get discouraged. Don't stop, you know, in front of the obstacles. Um, as we are, you know, talking to our audience, I think they would like to hear more also, if you have anything to share personally of your interactions with His Holiness Dalai Lama or with, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, I think that would uh -huh. be nice for you to share. Yeah, I feel, uh incredibly lucky that I have had, you know, interactions with His Holiness and Tibetan Buddhism. My first Tibetan teacher was in 1971. And uh, the, um, I guess there, there are a couple of stories about um, when His Holiness came to visit our center at uh, the Insight Meditation Society, which we'd established in 1976. And I was very young. I was 23 when we started it. And uh, my colleagues were young as well, though a little bit older, and we'd heard in 1979 that His Holiness was coming to Amherst, which is only, you know, like 40, 45 minutes away, uh, to visit Bob Thurman, who at the time was a, a professor there in Amherst. And uh, so we were very naive, you know, and we thought, maybe he'll come visit us too. So we we sent off a letter to the private office and said, well, we're a Buddhist center too. Maybe you'd like to come here. And to our astonishment, we got a letter back saying, yeah, he'd come. So then we had to get ready. And while security was nothing like it is now, still it was very rigorous for us. And the center is on this a little country road called Pleasant Street, about two miles from town. And we had to have it blockaded um, by state troopers and we had troopers on the roof with guns, you know, patrolling, and it was like kind of terrifying. And just before His Holiness was coming, I'd been in a car accident and I had a broken bone in my foot and I was using crutches, which I was not very skilled with. I was very clumsy. So, you know, the day came that he was arriving and um, I was standing in the back outside, the back of about a hundred people waiting to greet him and feeling very sorry for myself. I thought, oh, you know, helped start this place and I can't even be up front. And what an amazing occasion and I'm stuck in the back. I should go up front, but you know, if I go up front, I'll probably fall on my face in front of him. That'd be even worse. I better stay in the back, but oh no, I'm in the back. I'm, I'm really kind of miserable. And then uh, his holiness is car pulled up and he got out and he did something I've seen him do many times since, uh, which is that he seems to have almost a kind of radar for who in a crowd is suffering the most, and he goes there, and that was me. And he just like, I don't even know how he had time to see me visually, got up out of the car, cut through 100 people, took my hand, looked me in the eye, and said, what happened? And that actually was a, a shift in my understanding of compassion, which has never changed, in that he couldn't make the accident not have happened, and he couldn't make me any more skillful with the use of the crutches, but that horrible feeling of being so alone, uncared for, stuck in the back, unseen, it was gone just by him coming right there. And uh, so it was the beginning of his trip to the Insight Meditation Society. We went inside, um, when we bought the place, it was a Catholic novitiate. So we have 
a lot of or had a lot of social amenities, you know, from the novices. Uh, we have still a one-lane bowling alley, and at the time they had left us all these bowling pins and things like that. So these did go bowling. <laughs> uh, that's true. Everyone asked me how did he do, and I said I don't remember. It's just like in some state, but he picked up a bowling ball and actually threw it down the lane. And then uh, he gave a talk, and because um, we had a retreat that was ongoing, and the um, talk was followed by questions and answers. And yeah, some young man raised his hand and said, basically, I've been meditating for two weeks and I don't think I can do it. I don't think I have any capacity inside of me to learn or to grow or to understand things. I just, I don't have it. I can't do it. And His Holiness listened to him and then he looked at him and said, you're just wrong. You're just wrong. Like everybody has a capacity. And, and that statement, um, you're just wrong in a time of intense personal discouragement or when I'm looking at somebody, I'm someone who doesn't phrase it like that, but you know, and people feel um, they have so little capacity. Uh, and I think, no, you're wrong. And it was, it was like the single most encouraging statement I've ever heard. Yes, thank you. And in, in the next few days, actually, we'll also be involved uh, in the summit, the, the Dalai Lama Global Vision Summit, which will be online. And so it will focus, I think it's over a week, on some of the practices you know, of His Holiness and his teachings. Can you share also with our audience a little bit about that, how you will be involved and if you know more about this program? Yeah, I, I got involved because Bob Thurman uh, asked me uh, to do something, which I was obviously, you know, very uh, grateful for the chance to do. Um, and it seems to be that it's it's an entire year or something, you know, like where people are really trying to honor His Holiness, and uh, that is just one little part of it. The summit where right. people are offering their personal experiences and and their sense of the impact, because His Holiness's impact has been unfathomable, you know. Uh, I don't even know how you would measure it, and and is ongoing. At the same time, you know, when when you and I spoke, I spoke about sometimes uh, watching him give teachings now online, and I'm so charmed because he's like kind of a little bit like the rest of us, you know, in his own way, like I'm talking to nobody, you know. <laughs> I'm just looking at a screen, and then he spots a friend on the screen, like, oh, there's Bob Thurman. Oh, oh, I see your face, you know. And then all of a sudden, it's it's different and just sort of watching him be so masterful in the end of, of a whole new medium and be able to convey so much just looking at a screen it's it's really been delightful yes and yeah so it will be taking place i think from today or tomorrow so if people want to check it out it's uh, everybody can access free access and it's called the dalai lama global vision summit so people can go online and find out more about the programs uh, going back to your book they have it here, Real Change, check it out. So for this book, I mean, it's focused on real change, right? Connecting your inner practice with, you know, social um, change. So you have interviewed a few people who, you know, some of them you have mentioned, you know, in different areas, you know, do you want to mention one or two of them that, you know, you thought would be important for you to, to highlight in your book and why? Yeah, I think I, I learned so much from uh, every one of those of those people. Um, one person actually um, 
was uh, a man uh, who had worked in, uh, you know, in Haiti and Congo in various places with various agencies and found himself like incredibly burnt out. And the part that was hard, I think hardest, was that he was ashamed of what he was going through and that there's a kind of stigma to needing help or not only being the giver, the giver, you know, or the person helping and sort of his process and learning to receive as well as give was, was very profound to witness, you know, and actually I was a part of because I was teaching in meditation and um, to see how, you know, many times the structure of an organization or something is actually not fully supporting their, employees or their staff and uh, recognizing, you know, what it's like to, uh, I mean, to be so young, for example, and having to make decisions about, did I evacuate my staff, you know, or uh, this looks dangerous when there's a cholera epidemic or, you know, whatever. And, and so I would hope that as people can give voice more to their stories, that more organizations will will rally around and or this even just that this idea of mental health is not stigmatized in any way. And I have a friend who was also in the book um, who was very, very involved in the marriage equality movement in the States, or same sex marriage as we call it. And and uh, he would talk about things like a fifteen year campaign, which of course when you think of Tibet seems very short, but you know, like 15 years, it was a lot of years. And, you know, I'd say, how did you find the patients? How did you? Uh, and he said, you know, I just decided that every single day I was going to try to put one win on the board. That could be one conversation or an editorial in a newspaper or something. And I knew it was going to be step by step by step. And I knew that it was going to be when people understood other people's stories, when they could hear other people's stories so that the question wasn't statistics or something abstract. It was a human being who they wanted to adopt a child or something like that. And uh, that's when things began to change. But I kept thinking 15 years, <laughs> that's a long road. And, and that's impressive because as you know, things change and they move, but, uh, the kind of ultimate goal may be, you know, not not really apparent right now. And I contrast that to this time I was teaching somewhere um, in a foundation, and they had seated me in, in this room where I was facing on the wall in giant letters. If you can't measure it, it didn't happen. And I kept pondering that, and I brought it up that day in the class because on the one hand, I understand that if you're a foundation and you're giving away money, you want to understand that it's not being wasted in some way. But I kept saying, well, what about if you educate a child and you don't see the result for 20 years? Or what about those sort of ripple effects that we never even think to measure? It seems like it's it's an interesting kind of balancing act, you know, to have uh, clear goals and accomplishments, but at the same time, to have a much bigger vision. Yes, ah, that's so true. That's so true. And I think, uh, I mean, for us at ICT, 
I mean, we have a very, you know, we are very fortunate of having, you know, the example of His Holiness the Dalai Lama as a guiding, you know, light for us. And if you think about what he has gone through his life, losing his country when he was, you know, a little more than a teenager and being in exile for, you know, over 60 years and having to go through, you know, with the responsibility, the expectation from your own people, but also, you know, the expectation from your own teachings that you need to be part of a wider world and you have to share this with, with the world. So uh, being able to find some inner balance and, uh, you know, resilience uh, to go through all these, uh, I think it, it, it is part of, you know, genuine, you know, social change. And, uh, you know, living in uh, in societies where everything is measured, you know, sometimes from a business point of view, I mean, there are things that you you cannot measure change, social change, like a business. You have to have, you know, a better understanding of how human interactions and human societies evolve and, you know, keep you know, that optimistic outlook and vision that you know that you have to go through difficult times, but there is, you know, a chance for uh, for progress. And uh, this is a moment in which, you know, you know, many of us, all of us, we are living through difficult moments. You know, some of us are luckier, we have kept our job, we are able to, you know, to continue our lives more or less from the material point of view in the same way. There are are, there are others who are less fortunate, and maybe there are some of those who are watching. So I wanted to ask you if you have, you know, any advice, you know, for people who are maybe more stressed out these days, maybe they are in this moment a little bit less fortunate. How do you keep a positive? Well, I think that the thing I, I say to myself, you know, and to others is uh, resiliency a resilience doesn't mean you never fall down. It means you can pick yourself up. Because sometimes we also, we add to the really difficult circumstance kind of image of perfectionism, you know, that we need to uh, never freak out or, or, or be a little more poised about things. Or, and it's just not true. We will be frightened or we will feel overcome or we'll be very reactive but we can learn that it's not helpful to dwell in those spaces, you know, to rehearse them and get into them and, and decide, well, that's the ultimate truth. Uh, many evolutionary biologists would say, anyway, we have a negativity bias. You know, we're kind of trained um, biologically, genetically to look for danger, to look for threat, to look for warnings. and Sometimes we think that's all there is, and especially when things are so hard and, and harder for some people who may also feel left out or overlooked in the conversation. You know, so many people have started conversations with me, for example, saying, well, we're all isolated at home. And I said, well, we're not all isolated at home, actually. Some people are going out to work, you know, like I've talked to those ambulance drivers. Yeah. And, and people like that. And it's very easy to feel, well, no one's thinking about me, you know, in my situation, because uh, it's true, you know. Um, and so it's it's finding the inner strength and understanding that um, the stress dynamic is a dynamic. There's the pressure, the circumstance, which might be awful, uh, the the situation, and then there's the resource with which it's met. 
and some part of resource is having a community, not feeling so alone. And some part of it is really inner strength and it's seeing, well, things are really hard now, but look at that. I also have the habit of believing they can never change. That's not helpful. Or I just sit and go through my list of grievances all day long. That's not that helpful either. You know, or I blame myself, whereas, you know, this is like a worldwide situation of causes and conditions, you know, yeah. uh, but I somehow feel like I brought it all on myself. And, you know, so we look for those ways in which we actually can build a stronger sense of inner resource and not just buy into that particular way of thinking. And then at least we have some strength with which to meet what's going on. Thank you. And uh, I, as we call back Tencho to see if we have, you know, a few questions from our audience or comments, uh, I just wanted to ask you to share maybe with our you know, viewers, if people want to learn more about, you know, meditation practice or about, you know, what you specifically do, how can they, you know, reach you, where they can find out more on the internet or yeah, probably the easiest thing is SharonSalzberg.com because it's all on there. You just have to make sure your spell check doesn't change Salzburg to be like the city because it's not. It's my name is spelled S-A-L-Z-B-E-R-G. I've never been to Salzburg, but maybe someday we ever travel again. Okay, great. Here's Tenjo. So thank you so much. But that was very interesting. Um, listening to both of you and thank you Sharon. Um, we have a number of viewers uh, watching and um, we have a question. Our first question comes from Hilary Levin who's very close with all of our staff here and Hilary uh, sent a question by email. She says COVID has created a kind of self-imposed retreat for most of us um, spending more times in our homes with fewer options to socialize in person or travel. Um, like so many, I have found it extremely difficult at times. Every day is a challenge to maintain some sanity. Can you please talk about how to turn this stress into an opportunity to deepen one's practice on the Buddhist path? Uh, yes, thank you for that. There's actually a word, uh, anthropause means the earth has gotten quieter. Uh, seismologists and people who listen for earthquakes, which I guess is a sound variation, they say the earth has gotten quieter. And, and so uh, the challenge, of course, is for us to get quieter. And I think here, too, we, we can't have like unreasonable expectations. You know, uh, in the beginning of, of being at home and, and not ever leaving, uh, I was quoting somebody I heard somewhere saying, I always thought if I only had the time, I would really clean my house. Turned out that wasn't actually the problem. <laughs> I didn't really clean my house top to bottom. I didn't learn Spanish, which I thought I would. But we can actually uh, determine on a structure. And I think that's the hard part, you know, is it's such an unstructured life uh, for many people. And we have to create a structure. And and we can, and I think it would be wonderful to create a structure of study, for example. Uh, you know, and there are many resources to decide what you want to, to pursue. 
It could be learning a language, you know, if you want, or it could be the actual teachings. Uh, join a meditation group if there's one available that feels feels right to you. And, you know, like I said, I, I'm very passionate about voting. And so I've been going to groups where uh, we all sit together and then write letters to voters, you know, and that's about to come to an end. But uh, there are also groups that one can find that have very specific sort of flavors that way. And, and I think it would be good to do. Once you've joined, then there's some sense of accountability. It's also a good thing because it's such a crazy unstructured time that you think, oh, well, you know, there were only eight people in that group. If I never show up, they're going to notice. Like, maybe I'll show up. That's very true, trying to find uh, structure in the midst of all of these, as we also find working from home, even though we have more time. Uh, sometimes um, the day just goes by <laughs> before you get anything done. <laughs> so I'm confessing to that, Matteo. <laughs> Our next question um, comes from um, Kunde Yatsu. Kundela is asking, can meditation help to transform the minds of world leaders to become better persons? I believe it could if they did it. <laughs> you know, I think that's the, um, you know, somebody once asked me, I think I put this in the book as well. Someone once asked me a very uh, kind of interesting question. They, they said that um, when they look at their own minds, they realize that when they are in pain of some kind or disconnected, uh, or deluded, basically, you know, not really seeing uh, the reality of things, that's when they cause pain to others. And so they understand that that action that they might take is coming from a painful place within themselves. But they look at some of these world leaders and they don't seem to be suffering. They seem, you know, not always, sometimes they do actually, but they don't always seem to be suffering. Sometimes they look very pleased with themselves. And so he was having a hard time feeling any compassion in that way. And actually, I happened to be stand, happened to be sitting on a stage in Berkeley, California, with probably 12 other presenters, and nobody's word when this question came up. And finally, I answered, and, and I said, I agree with you, you know, that it's very hard. And sometimes I look at people, and I think, if you could only fray a little bit at the edges, you know, then I could feel, oh, yeah, you're really suffering. But I do believe two things. One is I believe if we look at our own experience, that becomes the laboratory for understanding others. And I do believe we, we act to inflict harm coming from a place of pain within, of disconnection, of delusion, and so on. And I also believe, and this is part a reflection of His Holiness um, offerings and certainly the Buddhist teaching, that a human being can can be of greatness of heart. We don't have to settle for being mediocre or ordinary. We are capable of so much. And the choices people make, you know, sometimes it seems to be in control and hurt others and be the best in a weird sort of way. And I think that's really sad, you know, that in the end, those are the choices you make. And so I do feel a kind of compassion as well. And uh, so far, nobody's asked of that kind. You know, a person is asked to truly meditate, so I can't really help. <laughs> Our next question comes uh, from a Facebook viewer, uh, Sarah Helena Burke. 
And um, Sarah's question is, um, it seems to me that often people in the West who practice Tibetan Buddhism are quite unpolitical. Do you think that Buddhists and meditation centers, and especially Tibetan Buddhist centers, should put a stronger emphasis on practicing compassion through action by promoting political support for Tibet and um, to keep the very culture they benefit from alive and educate them more about the conflict with China? Uh, well, I think education is always good, truly, and I'm not sure I've had exactly the same experience. Um, but I think, you know, uh, I think it can be approached in a lot of different ways. Um, I think Westerners in general might not have much sense of lineage, for example. Um, and and so understanding, like somebody once said to me, because most of my um, writing and teaching is about a particular meditation, take loving, te meditation technique called loving kindness. And so I was teaching somewhere, and somebody once said to me, this stuff is incredible. When did you make it up? And I said, well, I didn't really make anything up, and you're lucky. Actually, I didn't make anything up. But that's sort of how we are, you know? And to understand the, the lineage, lineages, this is ancient. Uh, there was the Buddha. There are cultures that have devoted themselves to preserving these teachings. There are uh, people who have devoted themselves to preserving and transmitting these teachings that that's the only reason that we could be sitting in, I think we were in Connecticut, you know, and uh, that they're available to us that we can experiment with. And so I don't think, I think that's a place also of education and just reminding people, you know, this didn't just happen in a workshop, you know, weekend or something like that. This came from somewhere. And, and what does it mean now to be, Tibetan person in Tibet? What does it mean to be a Tibetan person outside of Tibet? Um, what does it mean for the transmission, the further transmission of, of these teachings? And uh, I think that would help a lot, actually. Yep, and His Holiness always tells us safeguarding, helping Tibet also um, safeguards this culture that has something to contribute to the world. And, you know, he always says you don't have to be, um, you know, with with these teachings, you can be a better Jew, you can be a better Christian, you can be a better Muslim. You don't have to be a Buddhist to learn and uh, these practices and benefit from them. So what you've done is exactly um, kind of what His Holiness has been um, talking about. Um, and one of our viewers also put a comment here. It says, uh, Sharon, people like you keep the hope alive. Thank you for supporting Tibet. She says, you, Jack Cornfield, Ram Das. So she says, thank you. Um, there was a comment there. Um, thank you. So um, my last question is from Nicola Richter. And uh, Matteo, that you may answer this also. She says, Sharon, thank you so much for sharing your deep reflections. And she says, uh, could you suggest three meaningful actions and says, thank you, Matteo, also, which each of us could do to affect change to contribute to free Tibet. Oh, I'm going to turn this over to Matteo <laughs> for some expertise. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Nicola. And I, I think, you know, there are, uh, as Sharon as mentioned, nothing is too small, you know, in terms of action when you want to affect change. We are a community of, you know, over 100,000 people all over the world. We have, you know, three offices also in Europe and there are other Tibet support groups all over the world. So 
one way to contribute, you know, join one of these groups, become a member, make a donation, you know, it's $5, it's $500, whatever you can give, be part of this community. And when you become part of that, I guess, Nicola, you are one of our, you know, members or supporters. I mean, there are things we're now doing and it's a very critical time for, for us because we have one bill, which is currently in Congress, which passed the House at the beginning of the year. It's called the Tibetan Policy and Support Act. And this bill basically updates overall U.S. policy on Tibet, trying to strengthen some of the provisions there. And one key provision is to make sure that the U.S. government will make efforts both at the national level but internationally not to allow China to continue to control the Buddhist, the Tibetan Buddhist reincarnation system, and specifically their plans to select the future Dalai Lama. Because unfortunately they have already passed official regulations in which they have established that it's up to them, in their view, uh, to select the future Dalai Lama. And clearly this is going you know, to be part of a larger attempt by China to totally control Tibetan Buddhism. And if the world allows that to happen, that is not gonna you know, impact only Tibetans in Tibet. It's gonna impact you know, Tibetan Buddhism and Buddhist culture uh, all over the world. Uh, this is an issue naturally you know, for you know, Buddhist practitioners should be very close you know, to your heart. Uh, as you know, His Holiness is one of the most important teachers for sure in, in Tibetan Buddhism. But in general, it's a basic principle of religious freedom, of freedom of conscience, that you cannot allow any government to dictate who should be the leader of, you know, of a spiritual practice. Uh, and so that is something that you can do. You can go to our website. I think it's safetybet.org slash TPSA, which is the uh, acronym for the, for the bill, which is in Congress. And you can sign a petition to your senator in particular, because now the bill is in the Senate. And as you can imagine, this is not the easiest time to try to pass anything in the Senate. <laughs> and so uh, we, are, we are waiting to see if we can, we are, we are still optimistic that we can make it before the end we of the year. We have till the end of the year, yes, Matthias. Yeah, till the end of the year. So let's see what happens, you know, with the elections in two weeks. And then after that, Congress will be back, but we need all your support. So these are concrete ways in which you can contribute and you can find more on our website on safetybet.org. All right, that brings us to the end of our conversation with uh, Sharon Salzberg. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us and uh, thank you, Matteo, for moderating uh, that conversation. I was really, we learned a lot and uh, really enjoyed listening to you. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, no, thank you so much. It's a little bit like being back there. It's wonderful. Yes, thank you, Sharon. Hope to see you soon in person. So thank you, everyone, for joining. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, and as our speaker said today, step-by-step step, um, ripple effects, your support for Tibet, with your support, um, we'll make um, progress as we move along. Um, we will have more upcoming talks posted soon on our website at safetibet.org slash live. And uh, you'll also find links to all our previous shows there. We are also now, uh, we have a podcast available. And um, you, for information, you can go to safetibet.org slash pod, P-O-D.
Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your support for Tibet. And uh, we'll see you again very soon. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org pod. To get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org support. Talk to you next time on Tibet Talks.